Good morning. We are glad that you're here. Uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, we want to let you know that uh, the microphone's not always this loud. <laughs> Subtle, right? Subtle like a shotgun. Now, if you're a visitor with us this morning, we want to let you know that we do count it a privilege to worship with you. We're in the middle of a spiritual gift uh, sermon series, and we're going to continue that this morning. Y'all can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. Um, I'm going to pray and uh, dive in, and Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 is going to be our home base for the morning. So turn there and pray with me as we get started. Lord, we are very thankful for this morning. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. We are um, thankful for all the details that you have tended to before any of us even woke up this morning. We're thankful that you are a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers, and in peace we lay down and rest, for you alone make us dwell in safety, Lord. I pray that, um, that we would be aware of how great our God is toward us this morning as we begin. Lord, we want to pray uh, this morning uh, specifically for uh, the other churches in the area. Um, I just specifically pray that you would bless the other churches, bless their pastors. I pray for healthy marriages between pastors and, wi and, the, and their wives. I pray that they're living together in understanding ways so that their prayers are never hindered. Um, I pray for, for healthy um, discipleship in our local churches. And I pray that you would be glorified as we focus not on the things that we can do uh, on our own, but as we focus on um, serving a great God and multiplying disciples of our great God. Lord, I also pray for our city council and our city leaders. Uh, we pray that you would bless them, give them wisdom and discernment and insight to make decisions that are fitting uh, uh, and wise so that our community is blessed. And Lord, as believers, our, our ultimate goal there is that the gospel would continue to go forward in this environment. Lord, as we talk about the details this morning, and we talk about the spiritual gift of administrating, I pray that you would guide us. I pray that you would give me clarity, and I pray that you would open hearts and minds to receive truth from you, no matter what our preconceived ideas are as we land here this morning. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last six weeks, in fact, we've been preaching through a sermon series on spiritual gifts, and 1 Corinthians 12, we find one of a few different lists in Scripture where specific gifts of the Spirit are given to believers for the upbuilding of the body. So just right off the bat, when we're talking about spiritual gifts, I want you all to know that we're not just talking about things that you're naturally good at or things that you're naturally inclined toward, but we're talking about the manifestation of God in the form of the Spirit in the life of a believer as a gift, and it's not a gift that you sit on, it's a gift that you use to build other people up. So when, when you hear me say spiritual gifts this morning, that's what we're talking about, the, the things that God has given you through the Spirit so that you can build others up and encourage and edify them toward the truth and towards obedience. One of those spiritual gifts is the spiritual gift of administrating, administrating. There's at least three or four of you that are fired up right now, I know it. That's going to be our focus today. So look at Ephesians 5.15 with me. It's going to be our home base. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I'm going to read that again. I want you to pay attention to all the details in this verse. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. If you love calendars, spreadsheets, budgets, and to-do lists, and hi, yeah, there we go. I got an amen from a kiddo. Ah, that's a good start. Let's keep it going. All right. And uh, if you like um, to-do lists, if you like high output workflow management systems, this sermon is for you. If you've ever tried to bring joy to yourself by purchasing office supplies, this sermon is undoubtedly for you. If you're one of those weirdos that actually gets excited about back-to-school shopping, this sermon is for you. And if you're oddly encouraged by the smell of a freshly sharpened pencil, this sermon is for you. However, it, this sermon is not only for uh, you individuals who thrive on organization. It's also for others. Let me, let me illustrate the need that I think we all have for the spiritual gift of administrating by asking a few questions. Don't answer out loud. As always, it would be awkward for everybody, but think about the questions and how you would answer them. Is there anyone here who just feels like they have way too much time on their hands and is really looking for more stuff to do? Is there anyone here who just has way too much money laying around and you're looking for new creative ways to spend all that extra money? Does anyone here feel busy? More particularly, does anyone here feel too busy, tired, stressed, frustrated, or overextended? Do most of you feel at the end of the day, do, you, do most of you end your day feeling like you had just enough time to get everything done and wake up the next morning feeling as though you got just enough sleep to prepare you for the coming day? One writer quipped, time is the quality of nature that keeps events from happening all at once, and lately it doesn't seem to be working. I'll read that again. There's a little chuckle. There needs to be a bigger one. Time is the quality of nature that keeps events from happening all at once. Lately, it doesn't seem to be working. Do you feel that way? Do you identify with that? Where you're just like, there's not enough time. I got too much to do and not enough time to do it in. My, my question would be, are you able to move as a believer in our culture in a way of steady faith? Or would you categorize your life as one of frantic frustration. I find it both humorous and helpful that God's timing is such that this sermon falls on a week where many of us are ramping up for the school year, that this is the sermon on this Sunday where we are putting our schedules in order, we're purchasing school supplies, we're getting our classrooms in order, we're figuring out how in the world all of the extracurricular activities are going to jive with all the other commitments and responsibilities that we already had, even though none of the extracurricular activities have started yet. I'm thankful for God's timing. So in light of those realities, read the text. In light of your context, read this text. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, for the days are evil. Time. We're going to start a little, little heady 
It's not just philosophical, but what is time? You know, that's kind of where we're going to start this morning. Because the reality is, is that in order to understand the spiritual gift of administrating, you absolutely have to have a biblical view of time. In Genesis 1.1, we see in the beginning, God. The beginning of what? The beginning of time. So Genesis 1.1, what we see is the beginning of time, which tells us that time is a created thing. Time has a creator. Time is not just the enemy. Some of us would feel that way, where time is our enemy. Time is the thing that we continually run out of. Time is the thing that there's never enough of. But what we need to see is that time is a created thing. Time has a creator. Christ came to earth in the fullness of time. And one day, time will melt back into eternity when Christ returns. Now, some of you may have not finished your cup of coffee yet, and you're like, what? Dude, seriously. <laughs> Time's going to melt back into eternity, but we won't. It's going to be up. Uh... <laughs> it's important for us to have a biblical view of time, because if you just view time as the enemy, and time is something that you never have enough of, you don't have a biblical view of time, and the spiritual gift of administrating won't make any sense to you. But if we understand that time is created, time has a creator, and time will one day cease to exist, but you will not cease to exist. You are an eternal being. That gives us the foundation for understanding the spiritual gift of administrating. We're created as eternal beings who are called to make the best use of our time. So there's two things, at least, that are indicated here that we need to consider. The first thing is, if you are urged to make the best use of time, that means it is possible to make a bad use of time. It may seem obvious, but a lot of us need to hear that this morning, and here's why. You can be very busy, yet completely unfaithful and unfruitful. That needs to hit some of us this morning. Because if, if I'm called to, to, to have a sense of urgency to make the best use of time, that means that we can make a bad use of time. Some of us have this thought that, as long as I'm busy, I'm making a good use of my time. And that's not biblically true. We have sort of this arrogant thought that, well, I'm not one of those people that just naps all day and plays video games, so I must be making a good use of my time. If you like video games, that's not a slam on you unless you don't, you know, do other things. <laughs> but you can be very busy yet completely unfaithful. You can be going 90 to nothing, just always moving, always going, dragging the kids around with their tongues hanging out and not actually be making a good use of your time. You're using the time, you're filling the time, but are you making the best use of the time is what the scripture says. Biblically speaking, if you're constantly putting your time toward the urgent matters because you have not properly identified the important matters, Scripturally speaking, you are lazy and slothful. You see the sloth in Scripture? We're going to come back to this a little later in the sermon and look more in detail at it. But if you're the kind of person who is constantly giving attention and time to the urgent, because there's always urgent. Every day there's urgent. Everyone has an emergency, and they expect you to move on it. But if you're the kind of person who has never identified the important things, so you're always giving time to the urgent, Scripture calls you slothful. Schedules, schedules, very practical, 
schedules help you to identify what is important because it is possible to spend time on the unfruitful or the less fruitful. So I'm not even barely into the sermon. I'm already talking about something as practical as uh, have a schedule. Now, I'm aware that this is the spiritual gift that probably seems the least spiritual to a lot of people. Like, when you think of deep spiritual movement, you don't think of like spreadsheets and calendars and buying a watch and things like that. But this is a manifestation of the Spirit of God as a gift to the church to help us do what we need to do when we need to do it. So we need to see that it is possible for us to be very, very busy, but still making a very poor use of our time. The second thing is that if time has a creator, and we're, we're characterized as constantly complaining about not having enough time, we're essentially looking at God and saying, you messed up. You're at fault. You're the reason that I have way too much to do and not enough time to do it in. It's helpful to view time as a created thing because we see a creator and it keeps us from being the kind of people who day in and day out look like a reflection of the culture because we're always complaining about being so busy and never having enough time. God created it. Don't look him in the face and say, try again, God. You messed up. You're, you're the one at fault here. Time is the great equalizer. Nobody can add to it or take away from it. Consider also that we are eternal beings called to make the best use of time. Yet, get this, God's design is that we also spend a third of our lives in bed, asleep. That drives some of you crazy. I've heard people talk about trying to cheat sleep because they have so much to do. You know, I generally turn in about 2 a.m. and I roll out at 4.30 because I'm so busy and important. No, you're not. You're not that important that you cannot sleep according to your created purpose. A third of your life. Like, think about everything you have to do and the fact that God said, and you human beings who I created in my image are going to have to sleep for a third of every single day. It is utter arrogance to think that you can then look at God and say, nah, I'll sleep later, I'll rest when I die, things like that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So what I want you to see here is that for some of you, one of the most spiritual things you can do is start getting a better night of sleep. Quit staying up so late and getting up so early that every day is you looking like you think this world is a miserable place because you are tired. It is spiritually sound and spiritually appropriate to sometimes just take a nap if you didn't get the sleep that you needed. Because God designed you and all the things he's given us. We're talking about the administration of the spiritual gifts here. We're talking about all these things that God has in plan for us and these details he's cared about and he's given us. And you spend a third of your life laying on your back helpless doing nothing. The psalmist talks about this over and over again. In peace I both lay down and sleep, for you alone make me dwell in safety. When you're sleeping, you can't even make yourself dwell in safety. But all the while, God reminds us, he neither sleeps nor slumbers, right? So sleep is one-third of how you make the best use of your time. So I guess it's up to us to figure out what we're called to and how to figure out the best use for the other two-thirds of our time. 
So I guess that's what we're talking about this morning, the two-thirds that we're not sleeping. So what we have to consider, how do we do that uh, in our call to make the best use of time, is that it takes careful wisdom. If you're taking notes, please write that down. It takes careful wisdom. What does the text say? Look carefully than how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Careful wisdom. If, if your employer was to ask you to do a task or take care of a project, and upon giving it to you, they said, I need you to exercise careful wisdom, what would that tell you? That would tell you that the details are important, right? If God calls us to careful wisdom in regards to how we use our time, careful wisdom means that the details are important. Our Bibles are full of details. Now, some of you might be this person, some of you might know this person and want to choke them. But some people might say, I'm just, I'm just not a details person. And that's how they say it, because they're frantic and they're always, mm. just not a detail person. But that's kind of like the Christian that says, I'm not a reader. The Bible was written going to have to be a reader to some extent. And when you read it, you're going to find a lot of details. So to some extent, you're going to have to be a detailed person. Now, I get it. Some people have the gift of leadership and not the gift of administration. Some people have the gift of administration, administrating and not the gift of leadership. And so there's times where we need to be matched up with other people who can help us to be better in areas of our weakness. God has designed that to be the case, but he has not designed it to be the case that there is any Christian who absolutely does not care about the details. So to some extent, we have to care about the details because our Bibles are full of them. Some might say that in place of preparation and planning, they're just going to trust the Spirit. I'm just gonna, so what's the plan here? I don't know, man. I'm just going to trust the Spirit. Very spiritual. Now, again, the Spirit sometimes manifests Himself as a gift known as administrating. This means that the Holy Spirit never intended to be your excuse for laziness and lack of preparation in your life. Don't blame the Holy Spirit for the fact that you slept in. Don't blame the Holy Spirit for the fact that you showed up unprepared. And in fact, something can be very organized and planned and, and, and the, the details attended to, and it still be very, very spiritual. Because the Spirit is also in the planning. In fact, I would offer that sometimes the more you plan, the more you may have opportunity for the spontaneous work of the Spirit that's far outside of your control. So, why do we care about the details? Careful wisdom means that the details are important. Our Bibles are full of details. Consider the details of the creation account. In the beginning, we see God creating in a particular order. We see God creating human beings in a particular way. We see God putting those human beings in a garden. We see a serpent. We see sin enter the picture. We see temptation. We see them taken out of the garden. We see these trees of the, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And, and we see all these things in the creation account. And the reality is, if those details hadn't been written down, we would not know our origin. We would not know our created purpose. We would not know how to view God. We would not understand the sin problem that all of us have if those details were not there for us to look at and consider and read through and pray through and meditate on. We would not know, well, consider if the ark sunk. 
Where, where would we be if the ark sunk? Turn over to Genesis 6. I, there are so many spots. I was tempted this morning to just read through genealogies just to make you endure it or to read through the, the, the organization of the tabernacle and the temple just so you would see that details are there. But this is a short example in Genesis 6, verse 13, of details that are really important because if these details weren't followed, none of us would be here. In Genesis 6, 13, it says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through, through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. If you were Noah, would you be paying attention at this point? Right? Like whatever, God, whatever details God's about to share, I'm listening. The earth is going to be destroyed. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I don't understand that. I'm going to be honest with you. I've, I've studied this thoroughly. I believe the flood account and everything. I don't know what the, where the gopher trees were, and I don't know exactly what gopher wood is. But he's not allowed to use pine. It has to be gopher wood. First detail. You're not allowed to use whatever you want. Noah can't be like, gopher wood? Seriously? It's so, why can't we just use oak? We have oak all over the place. Why can't we just use that? Gopher wood? He's not allowed to do that. These are God's details that he's entrusting to Noah's care. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. It's like tar. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. What if the ark sunk? Because Noah was like, oh, man, we're going to go with like 290 cubits because I just don't have the energy to go get the other wood. 50 cubits, do we really need it to be that wide? It would be so much easier if I could just put the door in the back because of putting it in the side, you're in the structure of the deal. He doesn't have options to be flippant or haphazard with the details, does he? What if he did all of it perfectly to the exact cubit? And then was like, I am tired, and I am not covering that whole thing in pitch. Think about that. You just built that thing for like a hundred years, and then just cover it in tar. At that point, it'd be like, golly, that's, I thought we were almost done. We put the last peg in, and now we got to cover this thing in pitch. What if those details were unimportant to him, and the ark sunk? Consider the tent of meeting, and the tabernacle, and the wilderness, what if they were just thrown together without plans from God? If you've been here for Wednesday night studies, if you've ever studied through the Old Testament, you know that these details are important. We would never have known the importance of sacrifice. We would not know the importance of innocent blood. We would not know the importance of the priesthood and what it means to have access to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. What if the New Testament church was just left to wing it and figure out how it was supposed to be. Some people act like that, like we're just supposed to figure it out as we go along. No, you're not. There's a lot of details in here. If we didn't have details from God, we would not know about the priesthood of the saints. We would not know about deacons. We would not know about elders. And what if marriage and families were just supposed to hope for the best while figuring it out? That would go real well. 
We would just be a reflection of the culture. We would have no idea what it means for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. We would not know what a picture of biblical submission was. We would not know what it meant to model something in small that has such a bigger deal than itself. We would not understand those details. We would not know the, the call to be the disciple maker in the life of your own child and to make sure not to provoke them to anger but to raise them up in the fear and discipline of the Lord. We have details and we know how to move in this thing. We don't just have to wing it. These details are important. And that's why God calls us to careful wisdom. The details are important. Consider the prophecies and the fulfillment, the meticulously fulfilled prophecies in Christ. A lamb in his first year Not a bone was broken. They gambled for his clothes. The torn veil, the perfect blood, the man of sorrows acquainted with much grief, the perfect representation of the Father, the pierced side, the water that comes from it, the empty tomb on the third day. We are called to careful wisdom because the details are important. God created us in his image, and he is clearly a God of the details. So if we are imaging our Father, we will care about the details and not be flippant and haphazard in how we walk. Often, when you're convicted to be obedient, when you hear something and you're like, you know what, I need, to be, I need to spend more time on that. I need to think about this less and I need to think about this more. I need to put this sin to death and I need to move in obedience in this area. When you are convicted to be obedient, the first thing you have to deal with are the details. You've got to make time to do whatever it is God's calling you to. And that may mean saying no to other things. You have to deal with the details if you're going to deal with being obedient. This is why careful wisdom is required when we consider how to use our time. When you exercise the spiritual gift of administrating, you are showing careful wisdom to God's details. In the original language, administrating is a picture of guiding and governing like one who is steering a ship. Like one who is steering a ship. That's the illustration that Scripture gives us about administrating. It's like steering a ship. So we hear these messages week in and week out, right? And it's not enough just to hear it, because we're called to be what? Hearers and doers of the word. So the steering of the ship is how do we do these things and apply to life these truths that we have considered? Steer the ship. So in our church setting, we have the congregation of whom each of you has been equipped with a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts, and we have leaders who lead the congregation, but there's a group that is, maybe spans both congregation and leadership. Leaders are still part of the congregation. Those with the gift of administration are the ones who guide and steer the ship. They're the ones who steer the ship. In light of last week's sermon, you can think of administrating as the ordering of the imperatives. Ben had a wonderful point. He had a lot of wonderful points. I don't want to insinuate that that was the only good part of the sermon. But when he talked about the indicatives and the imperatives, it was so helpful, so tangible for us as we're walking in these things. But in light of his sermon, think about administrating and exercising the gift of administrating as the ordering of the imperatives. What, What I mean is that Ben explained last week how we consider both the indicatives and the imperatives, the th- who God is, what he has done, what is true, what, the narrative that we can just look at, and then we consider what we're called to in light of that, the imperative. He mentioned that imperatives without indicatives lead to legalism and bankrupt bossiness, 
a moral message that isn't really good news. So if all we do is hear, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, it's just moralism and everybody gets tired of moralism after a while. But then the other side of that is indicatives without imperatives lead to no action and no faithfulness. What that means is that if it's just constantly, oh, Jesus is so great, he healed those people, he fed those people, look at how, he didn't lose his temper there, that was great, oh man, he's so great, he's so great, but we never consider what we're supposed to do in light of the greatness of our God, it's empty. We're just listening to details and doing nothing with them because we are called to be hearers and doers of the word. Ben mentioned in his sermon that we are walking in indicative bathed imperatives, a call to obedience conditioned by the realities of grace. This is where the gift of administrating comes in. A call to obedience conditioned by the realities of grace. This is where we apply the gift of steering the ship via the Spirit's leadership. We consider God and all of his details, all of who he is, the indicatives, We exercise careful wisdom in how we walk in the details that he has entrusted to our care, the imperatives. We steer the ship. So what does this mean practically? It means we schedule corporate worship. And we we know who's going to be preaching. And we schedule who's leading worship. And we make sure who's greeting at the front door. And we make sure that there's people in the nursery who are there to watch your kiddos so that you can be in here and and receive whatever God has given to the guy who is preaching. We make sure there's people in the sound booth. We make sure that the equipment is tested. We make sure that there's batteries in the microphones. We schedule meetings. Oh, we schedule meetings, don't we? We schedule life group meetings, and we schedule Wednesday night studies, and we schedule elder meetings, and we schedule deacon meetings, and trustee meetings, and finance team meetings, because order is good. We schedule nursery schedules. We look at the vision that we're supposed to have, and the mission, and how we carry it out. We look at the timeless form of the church, and the timely functions of how we walk in what God has called us to. We look at curriculums. We assess curriculums. We implement new curriculums. We make meals and meal lists for people who have babies, and we use the gift of administration to say thank you right in the middle of the sermon for bringing us those meals. (laughs) Thank you. They've been very good, and you have blessed our family. We assess the details. We review our movements. We write policies. We consider the desired outcomes of every endeavor, and we work hard on each action step that brings us closer to those desired outcomes. We try to bring clarity to everyone's roles so that you can define, clearly identify goals that you actually put on your schedules. This is careful attention to our walk. Because remember, The goal of steering the ship isn't just to make sure you don't run into anything. The goal of steering the ship, like, I thought about doing this as an exercise. Like, okay, just, we're on a ship, and I give you the wheel and say, steer the ship. What's the first thing that jumps into your mind? And if the first thing that jumps into your mind is just don't hit anything... Maybe you don't have the spiritual gift of administrating. It's possible because that's not the goal of steering the ship. 
The goal of steering the ship is not just to make sure not to hit anything. The goal of steering the ship is to reach your destination with a careful account of all of your people and all of your cargo. I'm going to say that again. The goal of steering the ship is to reach your destination with a careful account of all of your people and all of your cargo. Turn to Acts chapter 6. I want us to see good order going into place and careful wisdom being exercised by some, some church leadership. And I want us to see the result of such good order in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Or verse 1. Now in these days... Sorry, I'll let y'all turn there. Acts 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Urgent matter. The widows are hungry. Nobody's allowed to say, who cares if the widows are hungry? Urgent matter. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I want you to circle, it is not right. How did they know it wasn't right? We have an urgent matter. How can you say it's not right? The widows are hungry. We're called to take care of the widows. They're hungry. How in the world can the disciples, the leadership at this point say, it's not right for us to go take care of that? This is a perfect example. Look what they do. Therefore, brothers, therefore, it's not right for us to stop preaching the word to serve tables and make sure that the widows aren't hungry. So you, you, we have two things. The widows need food, and the word needs to be preached. And look at what it says in verse five, 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And most of you don't know the rest of these guys. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, Nicolaus, uh, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The disciples had clearly identified what was important. The disciples had clearly identified what was non-negotiable. The disciples clearly understood their role. So when something urgent came up, they didn't just jump ship. They kept steering the ship. They didn't just jump ship and abandon everything they were doing to tend to the urgent. But they still tended to the urgent, didn't they? Do you see this? I want you all to see this example. They did not allow the urgent to trump the important. They had a good order they had good, careful wisdom. They knew their roles, and they said, it is not right. How did they know it wasn't right? Because they had clearly defined roles, and they knew what was important. And the urgent wasn't necessarily unimportant, but it just wasn't important enough to make them abandon what they already knew they were supposed to be doing. So they came up with a solution. This is careful wisdom in regards to the walk. Careful attention to details. This is making the best use of time. Because had they said, you know what, we're just not going to preach this week because the widows are hungry and we're going to take care of them. 
that would have not been making the best use of time. That would have been a, a lesser or a more poor use of time for this young church. And what I want us to see this morning, look at the result of good order. Look at verse 7. They do this, they, they make this decision, they steer the ship. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that little margin that you might have in your Bible right there, right, result of good order. What more could we ask for as we are being the church than for the word of God to increase, to increase disciples to multiply, and more people to become obedient to the faith? That's the kind of result that you get when there's good order in the church, good order in your homes, good order in your marriage, good order in your parenting. Turn back to Ephesians 5. This last point, Ephesians 5.15, finally, careful wisdom in how we spend our time is needed because it says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So that's something else, to have a biblical view of time, to understand biblically what time is. We have to understand that the time we live in is apparently a time where the days are evil. Second Corinthians says the God of this world, lowercase g, not God, Satan, is what we're talking about. The God of this world wants to blind the minds of believers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we live in a time where the days are evil, and that's why we're called to exercise careful wisdom in how we spend these days. Your ESV study Bible states, wisdom is especially needed in an evil age where the pathway of holiness is not always immediately clear until one reflects upon God's word and discerns his holy will. You believe that? Have you experienced that? Do you see things on the news or on your news feed on Facebook or Twitter and you think, gosh, what's right here? What's holy here? And it's hard to discern because there's so many voices, because there's plenty of distractions and plenty of urgent, because we live in a time where the days are evil. And it takes time to sit and consider God's word and figure out what his will is for you in that moment. We reflect upon the indicatives so that we can figure out those imperatives. We reflect upon who God is and what he wants so we can figure out his will for what we do. Good order is needed, but apparently, according to this verse, it is unlikely to be stumbled upon. Do you find that to be true in your life? That good order is unlikely to just be stumbled upon? I would really like to lose a few pounds. I'm just hoping it happens, right? Just jump on the scale. That's <laughs> oh, 15 pounds. That never happens. It never happens. Or, you know, trying to spend more time on something that you find important. You can't say, God's leading me to spend more time on this and then never put this on your schedule because you're never just going to stumble into better order. If you feel like your house is in disarray and you're just hoping it magically changes, stop hoping it magically changes. Go to God in prayer and say, God, apparently there's a spiritual gift of administrating. And God might lead you to sit and take more time to consider how much TV the family watches, how many extracurricular activities you're a part of, 
how you say marriage is important, but you haven't had an uninterrupted conversation with your spouse in six months. How you say raising your children is important, but they spend more time in front of the TV than they do in front of you. The spiritual gift of administrating helps us to bring better order because we're never, ever, ever going to just stumble upon being healthier and well-balanced and better users of our time. We're not just going to stumble upon that. We have to go to God for that. The days are evil and you will have distractions and urgent matters every single day. It takes discipline and it takes work to sit down and consider your roles, consider your schedules, and consider your budget. If you've not already established what's important, the urgent will always win, and the important will remain untouched. You could realistically go your whole life and say, there's nothing more important than my marriage and my children, than, than my spouse and my children. You could go your whole life saying that and never actually having an uninterrupted moment in the day where you're talking about worthwhile things with either of them. That is imbalance, and God calls us to much better order than that. We will give an account. See, ironically, people who abandon the important for the urgent are known biblically as slothful. The days are evil. Time is temporary, but one day our master will return, and we will give an account. In closing, turn to Matthew 25. Sometimes when you realize that you're going to give an account for your time, it just has a tendency to kind of freak everybody out. Like you might be thinking at this point, okay, I'm not real organized, but I didn't know I was going to go to hell for it. So <laughs> throw me a bone here and help me out. I want to make sure it's clear that's not what I'm saying. And that's why I'm reading this parable, because I think this parable helps us to make better sense of what it means that Jesus is going to come back and we're going to give an account for how we use our time. Matthew 25, 14, the parable of the talents. Now, this talent that we're talking about is not like a talent like something you're good at, like juggling. This is a, a, an amount of money that is significant. That's all you need to know. It's an amount of money that's significant. For it will be like a man. It, what are we talking about it? We're talking about the return of God, the return of Jesus to earth to take us home. Before this, we see the coming of the Son of Man. No one knows what day or hour. It'll just sneak up on us, and, we, and it'll, it'll happen when, when, because nobody can actually know when that's going to be. And so he's trying to explain what's going to happen when time melts back into eternity, when Jesus returns to take us home. And he says, it, that time, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So God wants us to see this parable and see him as a master who is going away for a while but is entrusting his property to us. It's still his property, but he's entrusting it to us. So to one servant, he gave five talents, to another two and to another one, to each according to his ability. So we have ability along with the, being entrusted with these things. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. We can 
assume from the text that they didn't know when he was coming. They just knew he was. And he settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And listen to what the master says. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Could there be anything sweeter that any of us could ever hear? And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. So he moved out of fear, which is not how we're called to move. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own just with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And listen to this. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable explains important details that actually pertain to all of the spiritual gifts. How we use that which God has entrusted to our care. The details of our lives. The time that you have. The resources that you have. The relationships that you have. The conversations that happen are all of God's details. We have to see them as belonging to God. We don't have this big area of stuff that's ours and then this little area that, okay, God, you can have this. That ain't how it works. Think about how it would have been if those servants said that to that master when he returned. It all belongs to God. They're all God's details, and he has entrusted them to your care. And in entrusting them to us, we need to make sure that we don't have an improper view of God, like the unfaithful servant. What I mean is God expects us to use our gifts wisely, to use our time wisely, and to be good stewards of his resources. We will give an account for time when time ceases to exist. God gives us his spirit so that we can steer the ship with careful attention and careful wisdom and genuinely make the best use of our time. I want, some of y'all just need to hear this morning, it is possible for you to make the best use of your time. Every day, you don't have to feel like you failed in making the best use of our time. God's given you his spirit and we steer the ship. Frantic frustration was never God's plan for his children. If that's where you're at, I want you to know God has something better for you. So what does this have to do with Jesus and the gospel? I mean, sometimes I think we view this spiritual gift as the least spiritual because it's just so practical. 
I mean, the, the, the action points of the, of the morning could be go get a watch and a calendar and get to work. So how is this important to the gospel and important to Jesus? What does this have to do with Jesus and the gospel? Well, it appears that how we steer the ship, how we steer the ship of this church, how we steer the ship of our homes, it appears that how we steer the ship of marriage, how we steer the ship of parenting, is indicative of if we are really trusting our master. It's a matter of being good and faithful servants who are welcomed into the joy of our master when he returns. It is possible to be entrusted with time that is simply squandered and wasted. To the one who did nothing with what God had given him, God calls that man wicked, slothful, and worthless. And he casts him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not possible to be a faithful Christian and sit around and do absolutely nothing with what God has entrusted to your care. And we're not ending, this isn't a scare tactic. I don't want you to feel like I'm going to hell if I don't have a schedule. I don't want you to leave here today feeling that way. So I want to close with a truth that will help us to bring these things into balance. The good news for us this morning is that for those who are in Christ, God has taken care of every detail for you. Okay? That's what we need to close with this morning. For those who are in Christ, God has taken care of every detail for you. So you might be saying, well, why is it so important then that I take care of the details? Because that's God's design. It makes sense in Scripture, so it will make sense in your life. If it's what it says here, it will make sense here as we live it out. God has tended to every single need you have ever had. God has tended to needs that you have that you didn't know you have. God knows your deepest need before you ever voice your deepest need. That's the good news of the gospel. He's saving people that have no idea what it even means to be saved. He's bringing people to redemption who have no idea that they need to be redeemed. God is more in tune with your needs and the details of your life than you will ever be, and he has taken care of every single one of them. Jesus is intimately aware of every part of our lives because every part needs to be redeemed. You don't have like a part of your life, you're like, I don't need redemption there. No, Jesus is like, no, every part needs to be redeemed. So I will know every part of your life. I will tend to every detail. This is sovereignty. It should encourage us as we try to exercise the spiritual gift of administrating. God is sovereign over every detail, and he entrusts some of those details to your care and your responsibility. Exercise the gift of administrating and steer the ship like a good and faithful servant who has been completely and perfectly redeemed. There is a big difference between someone steering the ship and saying, I don't want to go to hell, I don't want to screw this up, and someone who is saying, I have been completely, perfectly, totally, every detail taken care of redeemed, and I'm going to steer the ship of my home in faith. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to steer the ship of work and marriage and children, and I'm going, to, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be about it, but I'm not going to do it as if I'm trying to earn my salvation and earn God's approval. God's approval is something that you have because of Jesus. As we take the supper this morning, luckily we don't just have to wing it. Some things were written down for us in 1 Corinthians and other places that help us 
to understand what it is, in fact, that we are doing when we take the supper and how to take it rightly. 1 Corinthians 11. You can turn there if you'd like. 11, 23 through 28. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So, as we're being given direction on how to take the supper, we're not just making it up. We're not just saying, uh, today the supper's about this. We're taking the supper the way that Jesus told us to. It's the words that he... I mean, this is the last part of Jesus' life on earth, and he sat to take the supper with them because it was so utterly important. And here, thousands of years later, we're still taking the supper because of the details that he deemed important to share and the details that Christians before us continued to walk in. We wouldn't have the supper if the details weren't important. We'd probably be doing something way different. So it says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after the supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until time ceases to exist. So for us to take the supper rightly this morning, as we distribute these elements, I want you all to do a couple things. First, I want you to be thankful. Now, thankful isn't just a state that we're in. Thankful you're actively saying, God, thank you for tending to these details. Thank you for tending to my sin. Thank you for bringing redemption when I didn't even know how to ask for it. I want you to spend a few minutes as we deliver and, and, and pass out these elements thanking God for all that he has done. And then I want you to consider the remembrance part. That's part of the thankfulness is remembering what Christ did. Remembering what it would have been like in that upper room where they were having the supper together. Remember what it would have been like for him to share these words knowing that these were some of the last words he would share with his disciples as he served them. And then I want you to spend some time anticipating the return of Christ. I want you in your mind to, to, to visualize what it's going to be like when he comes back and time ceases to exist and we give an account for the time and we enter into the joy of our master as good and faithful servants. Thankfulness, remembrance, and anticipation as we pass the elements around. Scripture says that Jesus told his disciples that I will not partake of this cup until I partake of it again with you. So part of the thankfulness that we have, part of the remembrance that we have, part of the anticipation that we have is that in fact, the last time that Jesus took this cup, he took it with his disciples, and the next time that Jesus takes it will be with you upon his return. When time ceases to exist and melts right back into eternity, and we continue as eternal beings. So as we take these, this cup and we, and we take the bread, I want you to just be very encouraged this morning and very aware of all of those details that went into the fact that we're taking this right now. All the things that God tended to, all of the specificity, all of the organization, in the fullness of time, Christ came so that you could live forever with him.
with thankful hearts. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, every time we hear from your word, we are reminded with one reason after another after another that you are great and you are greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful that we have imperatives and I'm thankful that we have indicatives. I'm thankful that we're not just called to kind of wing it and hope for the best that you're a God who's meticulous and a God who's aware, a God who's never aloof or distant or disconnected. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to walk in these realities. I pray that if conviction needs to happen, that it would. I pray that if encouragement to keep up in a particular direction needs to happen, that that encouragement would be received by those who need it. Lord, you, you are so incredibly good to us, and we love you. pray these things in Jesus' name.